Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the Thea Astley Lecture presented by Stan Grant, recorded live at the 2016 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. He's a Wiradjuri man and award-winning journalist who has covered some of the world's biggest news events in his time working for Sky News, CNN, The Seven Network, ABC and SBS. He's been Indigenous Affairs Editor for The Guardian, host of NITV's The Point, and this year was appointed a member of the Referendum Council, promoting recognition of Indigenous people in the Constitution. So to deliver the Thea Astley Lecture for 2016, please welcome Stan Grant. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hopefully that... uh you can hear me. Uh, thank you all so much for coming along. And you know, wet day, and um, I'm really, really touched that you can be here and uh, be able to listen what, to what I have to say today. I want to first of all pay my respects to the traditional people of this land and bring greetings from my people, my father's people, the Wiradjuri, and my mother's people, the Gamaroi, as my father's people would say in, in our language, Nado Yinjumare, Mainji Ninagare, Niani Bugalingura, Ninayaradu pay my respects and ask that we can meet here today as one. I want to speak today about someone who has been a guiding light in my life, someone who speaks to the writer that I would wish to be and measured against him know that I will always fall short. I was about 13 years old when I first discovered James Baldwin. I stumbled upon his novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain. It was the title, I think, that first drew me in. I loved that old song, Go Tell It on the Mountain, Let My People Go. Like Baldwin, I had a lot of religion in me. It was old-time religion. Like Baldwin, I'd been raised in the church, the black church, the church of the missions that my family grew up on. Ours was the church of fire and brimstone. Ours was a church of sin and redemption. We worshipped the suffering Jesus. We worshipped the Jesus on the cross. Matthew 27, 46. Eli, Eli, Lemma, Sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For we were the forsaken. Ours was the King James Bible, none of this standardised version. We wanted the sound of the word of God. We loved how those old words rolled around our mouths. My mother would spit my hair down, put me in my best shorts and shirt each Sunday to head off to the mission on the edge of Griffith, where I grew up, to go to the local church. My uncle, my father's brother, was the pastor. It was an exalted position in our community. Drunks would stand up a little straighter and mothers would hush their children as he walked by and my uncle played this role with aplomb. I can still hear him now thundering from the pulpit, a handkerchief mopping the sweat from his brow as he pointed at the congregation. He knew he was talking to us. And we knew 
that he was talking to us. Luke 17, too, was a favourite of his. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged around his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. My uncle's words hung as heavy as the air. I remember my nausea filling and rising with the heat. My neck would stiffen and my temples throbbed. It was all I could do as a young boy not to flee the church. I knew outside that the air was sweet with the smell of fruit from the nearby orchards, orchards that bordered the mission. The fast-running currents of the irrigation channel promised relief from the swelter. The channel was always a foreboding place for us. It had taken the lives of so many of our people, many of them stumbling in while drunk and unable to get out. The channel was guarded by a blanket of sharp-edged burrs, catheads we called them, jagged, vicious things that once piercing the skin would burn for hours. But cooped up in that little wooden church with my uncle's shout and spit, I would think how I would risk it all just to make a run for it. But of course, I could never escape my mother's eye. She would cast sideways disapproving glances whenever she felt my irritation rising. The hymns we sung were old and forlorn. The old rugged cross, amazing grace, shall we gather at the river. Soon we'll reach the silver river. Soon our pilgrimage will cease. Soon our happy hearts will quiver with the melody of peace. All these songs promised a better day, because a better day was all that we could hope for. These days of sermon and song prepared me for James Baldwin. Go Tell It on the Mountain was the story he had to tell. It was his life in the church. It was his life among his people. Here was the story of two brothers, John and Roy, their father, the preacher, histories hidden, bodies buried, and children left to untangle a family's secrets. This was the world that slavery had made. It came out of the black American experience, but as a young boy, it spoke very powerfully to me. To an Aboriginal boy moving on the margins of outback New South Wales, poor and itinerant, but in love with books and words, Baldwin sounded like home. We were living in a world that could not see us and Baldwin made me visible. Before Baldwin, books were entertainment. I would spend many hours with Mark Twain, Robert Louis Stevenson, Charles Dickens or Arthur Conan Doyle. My mother would scrounge books wherever she could. I don't recall much in the way of birthday or Christmas presents. A scooter and a bike, I think, stand out. But I devoured my most treasured gift, a book of Greek myths. It transported me to a world of Icarus, Narcissus and Zeus. But Baldwin fixed me in the firmament, the place between the worlds separating the waters of the white and the waters of the black. He was a place for me. He was a writer of courage and truth. 
The people of his book arrived fully formed. They didn't exist as a reflection of whiteness. This wasn't blackness as imagined, but real and flawed and courageous and pitiful. People who surprised and disappointed. These were people, black people, who were human. Baldwin said, I wish only to be an honest man and a good writer. And he was both. A black man confronting his country's legacy of racism. A son confronting his father's hypocrisy. A gay man confronting his sexuality. He became a touchstone for me. After Go Tell It on the Mountain, I devoured whatever I could find. His essays were searing meditations on race and history. Each line quotable and a lesson in life. Words so brutally rendered that they make me wince even now. Words now unutterable and unthinkable. For the state, a nigger is a nigger is a nigger. Sometimes Mr. or Mrs. or Dr. Nigger. Those words still speak to the America of Black Lives Matter, to the America where the first black president can have his citizenship questioned. They speak as powerfully to that country today as they spoke to the Jim Crow segregated South. In Nobody Knows My Name, he wrote, I have spent most of my life watching white people and outwitting them so that I might survive. By the time I read that, I had already figured out that dance for myself, how to navigate a world where I was always underestimated, trapped by the tyranny of low expectations. But Baldwin gave voice to what I knew but could not say. On the centenary of the Emancipation Proclamation, the freeing of the slaves, Baldwin wrote The Fire Next Time, a letter to his nephew, his brother's son. In it he wrote, I know what the world has done to my brother and how narrowly he has survived it. And I know, which is much worse, and this is the crime I accuse my country and countrymen and for which neither I, nor time, nor history will ever forgive them. That they have destroyed and are destroying hundreds of thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know it. I have returned so often to Baldwin this past year. I have read again his words and felt their pull and they guide me today as surely as they did when I first read them. What a world they speak to. The tragedy of so many lives laid waste. I turned to Baldwin when I heard the news that another Indigenous child had taken her life. She was only 10 years old, living in a far northwest corner of Western Australia. 10 years old. We know what that looks like or what that should look like. Ten years old should be giggling at the back of the school bus. Ten years old should be swapping notes behind the teachers back in class. Ten years old should be singing into a hairbrush and dancing in front of a mirror. But 
the 10 years old to this girl looked like hopelessness. This would be shocking if it were rare, but for Australia's First Peoples, this is numbingly familiar. Indigenous kids under the age of 14 are almost 10 times more likely to kill themselves. I turned again to Baldwin just these past weeks as we have heard the screams of Aboriginal boys locked up and beaten in the Northern Territory. James Baldwin, so unflinching, so unbowed, a man writing free of the white gaze. I turned again to the letter to his nephew, the fire next time. You were born into a society, he wrote, which spelled out with brutal clarity and in as many ways possible that you were a worthless human being. Is this too harsh? Are we too, in 2016, deemed worthless? My instinct is often to soften the blow. Even knowing what I know, I struggle to accept that this really is my country. That in 2016, this could be who we are. I think of my fellow Australians of goodwill, those who have loved and cried with us, and I say, surely this is not the true measure of us. But then I think again. I think of how 97% of kids locked up in the Northern Territory are black kids. I think of their parents too, likely, behind bars. I think of their parents, their grandparents, likely gone too soon, dead before their time. In this country, Indigenous Australians still die 10 years younger than their fellow countrymen. I think of how suicide remains the single biggest cause of death for Indigenous people under the age of 35. I think of Aboriginal women 45 times more likely to suffer domestic violence than their white sisters. An Aboriginal woman is more than 10 times more likely to be killed from violent assault. I think of the lives chained to misery. To write of this is to cast aside self-doubt. It is to care more for what is said than what will be read. To be concerned less with how the reader may feel than to honour those whose lives I write about. To write free of the white gaze. The white gaze is a phrase that resonates among black American literature. Writers from W.E.B. Du Bois to Ralph Ellison to Baldwin and Toni Morrison have struggled with it and railed against it. As Morrison, a Nobel laureate, has said, our lives have no meaning, no depth without the white gaze. And I've spent my entire writing life trying to make sure that the white gaze was not the dominant one in any of my books. The white gaze. It traps black people in white imaginations. It is the eyes of a white school teacher that sees a black child and lowers expectations. It is the eyes of a white cop who sees a black person and looks twice, or as we have seen, even worse, reaches for his gun. Du Bois explored this more than a century ago in The Souls of Black Folk, 
reflecting on his conversations with white people and the ensuing delicate dance of the Negro problem. Between me and the other world, he said, there is an ever unasked question. All nevertheless flutter around it. Instead of saying directly, how does it feel to be a problem? They say, I know an excellent coloured man in my town. To the real question, I answer seldom a word. The flame has passed to a new generation. Over the past year, I have looked to three more black writers who have stared down the white gaze. In their own ways, ta Coates, Claudia Rankin and George Yancey have held up a mirror to white America. They are uncompromising and fearless voices. Coates's searing essay, Between the World and Me, critiques America against a backdrop of black deaths at the hands of police. He says countries, his country's history is rooted in slavery and the assault against the black body. In the form of a letter to his son, Coates writes, here is what I would like for you to know. In America, it is tradition to destroy the black body. It is heritage. In Citizen, an American lyric, the poet Claudia Rankin reflects on the black experience from the victims of Hurricane Katrina or Trayvon Martin, a 17-year-old black youth shot dead by a Neighbourhood Watch volunteer who was then later acquitted, or black tennis star Serena Williams. In each case, Rankin sees lives framed by whiteness. She writes, because white men can't police their imaginations, black men are dying. Philosophy professor George Yancey penned a letter to the New York Times addressed to Dear White America. He asked his countrymen to listen with love and to look at those things that might cause pain and terror. Don't run to seek shelter from your racism, he said. Practice being vulnerable, being neither a good white person nor a liberal white person will get you off the proverbial hook. Their unflinching work is not tempered by the fact a black man is in the White House. That only makes their voices more urgent. Coates, Rankin, Yancey, each has been variously praised and awarded, yet each has been pilloried as well. This is inevitable when some people don't like what the mirror reveals. It takes courage for a black person to speak to a white world, a world that can render invisible people of colour, unless they begin to more closely resemble white people themselves. An education, a house in the suburbs, a good job, lighter skin. In Australia too, black voices are defying the white gaze. We may not have the popular cut through of a Morrison or a Baldwin or a Coates, but we have a proud tradition. Ujuru Nunuckle, Kevin Gilbert, Ruby Langford, Kim Scott, Alexis Wright, Anita Heiss. Their styles and genres are many and varied, but there is a common and powerful theme of defiance and survival. This is a world so instantly recognisable to us, Indigenous people, but still so foreign to white Australia. I think of Natalie Harkin's book of poetry, Dirty Words, a subversive dictionary that turns English words back on their users. A is for apology, B 
for both people. G is for genocide. S for survival. How do you dream, she writes, when your lucky country does not sleep? Bruce Pascoe's award-winning dark emu challenges the white stereotype of the primitive hunter-gatherer. He says the economy and culture of indigenous people has been grossly undervalued. He cites journals and diaries of explorers and colonists to reveal the industry and ingenuity of pre-colonial Aboriginal society. He says it is a window into a world of people building dams and wells and houses, irrigating and harvesting seed and creating elaborate ceremonies. None of these things that we were taught at school. Tony Birch, the acclaimed novelist, his latest ghost river is remarkable. The story of two friends navigating a journey into adulthood guided by the men of the river. Men others may see as homeless and hopeless. Birch's work is infused with a sense of place and belonging. Ellen Van Nierven, one of the most exciting young writers in our country. Her heat and light is a genre-busting, mystical journey into identity, sexual, racial and national. It is provocative, challenging and mind-bending and stunning. That these works are not more widely read is a national shame. George Yancey asks white Americans to become unsuited, to open themselves up and let go of their white innocence. Why is this important? Well, for white people, it may simply be a matter of choice. The fate of black people may not directly affect them. For us, it is survival. The white gaze means we die young, are locked up, and locked out of work and education. When I came to write Talking to My Country, I came with Baldwin as my guide. I came to write free of the white gaze, yet aware too that to understand myself, to understand my country, was to understand how we are reflected in this country's whiteness. I am born of deep traditions. My footprints trace the first steps on this land, yet I am born too of the white imagination. This imagination that said we did not exist, the imagination that said this was an empty land, terra nullius. Terra nullius is not just a legal doctrine. It is a state of mind. We were rendered invisible, our rights extinguished. If we existed at all, if we were visible at all, it was as the fly-blown savages unfit to be counted among the civilised races of the earth. Our story here was a story written in other lands, colonisation, subjugation and a brutal dispossession. The Canadian political scientist Joyce Green has written, the dehumanisation of Indigenous peoples was necessary for dispossession and subsequent judicial oppression. Dispossession and oppression. The white gaze that justified or could turn a blind eye to the ravages of massacre and disease that devastated my people. It was the white gaze of settlers like William Cox. He was awarded the first land grant after the crossing of the Blue Mountains. And said of my people, the Wiradjuri, 
the best thing that could be done would be to shoot all the blacks and manure the ground with their carcasses, which is all the good they were fit for. It was the white gaze that left no place for us in this new nation. It was the white gaze that at the time of Federation forecast our doom, that we were a race bound for extinction and not fit to be counted among the citizens of this country. We hear the white gaze in the words of our second Prime Minister, Alfred Deakin, who at the time of Federation said we have the power to deal with any race within our borders except the Aboriginal inhabitants of the continent who remain under the custody of the states. There is that single exception of a dying race. Let us hope that in their last hours they'll be able to recognise not simply the justice but the generosity of treatment which the white race who are dispossessing them and entering into their heritage are according them. That we would die out and that we would be grateful for the white small mercies. By the time I was born in 1963, the white gaze had placed us on the margins of society, on the outside looking in. My parents' lives had been singed by the fires of bigotry and poverty. We moved from town to town, my father having little to offer but his muscles and his willingness to work. I wonder now when I hear the sneering judgment of some in our media with their mocking, comic interpretations of Aboriginal people, mocking Aboriginal parents, lecturing them on the failure of responsibility that they are somehow to blame for the children beaten and locked up. I wonder where is the kind word and praise for people like my parents. And they were just two of many Aboriginal mothers and fathers who have held their families together against overwhelming odds. I support the idea of freedom of expression, freedom of speech, because no one can hide. It reveals just who these people are. And when we look at those mocking cartoons, what they find funny, I wonder where is their kindness? Yes, we fall short. Yes, we fail. Yes, some parents may be guilty of abandoning their responsibilities. But do we have to point it out with such glee? Do we have to take such joy in pointing out the misery and the failure of Aboriginal people? I wonder if these people smug in their place in Australia would have looked upon me as a child a dozen schools before I was in my teens, no permanent home, an itinerant labourer father, a gypsy caravan of extended family, born black and poor. Would they have argued I would be better removed from those people who loved me? Yet this same family raised me from sawmill shacks to stand in the Oval Office at the White House and the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. My journey has taken me around the world. I've spent much of my professional life reporting countries and peoples 
who could not hold, torn apart by age-old enmities, religion, history or ideology. I have witnessed firsthand the troubles of Northern Ireland pitting Catholic against Protestant, the Cold War relic of North Korea, the nuclear fault line of Kashmir, the existential standoff between Pakistan and India, the rise of China and its mantra of throwing off a hundred years of foreign humiliation and the bloodied borders of the Middle East. Overseas, like James Baldwin, I found a personal liberation. In those countries torn apart by their own histories, I could walk free of mine. And if I'm honest, I found a liberation not just from the white gaze, but from the black gaze. I found that I could be free of my history and free even if only for a short time from the reminder of the misery that traps so many of my people still today. The philosopher Kierkegaard said, life can only be lived forward, but it can only be understood backwards. I returned to my country after many years away to walk in my past and to try to find a way forward. I returned last year to an Australia that was still divided by its past, still facing each other across the chasm of our history. Last year, of course, Aboriginal people heard the howl of humiliation when we heard the booing of Adam Goods, a man who was an Australian man, an Australian of the year, but told he was no longer welcome in the game that he loved. And I wondered why is it that in this country, a country clearly of such greatness, that one people, the first peoples, continue to pay a price for that greatness? Why is it that we can continue to turn away from the plight of so many Indigenous people? This year, the ground has moved beneath my feet. Things I have said or written have found a willing audience. And Australia ready to pierce what the anthropologist Bill Stanner once called the great Australian silence. I have felt a pressure of expectations. Some have turned to me for answers to questions as old as this nation itself. I haven't sought to represent anyone. I've never aspired to leadership, and yet I find myself bearing its burden. There are others who have said and done far more than I. There are those heroes of our people who have stood up and made my life possible. Heroes like Vincent Lingiari, who walked off his land in the Northern Territory to fight for better wages and had Gough Whitlam pouring sand through his hand as he won back his country. People like Charles Perkins who boarded a bus from Sydney University to smash segregation in outback New South Wales. Those people who pitched tents on the lawns of Parliament House to demand that our voices be heard. When I measure myself against those people, when I ponder their sacrifices, 
I can't help but feel inadequate. I've always felt more comfortable on the outside. It's a strange thing for someone who has made a career in front of a television camera, but I've always done my best work alone. There has been speculation at times this past year about going into politics. Perhaps at times my ego may have even tempted me. But politics demands a certainty that I don't possess. I am a writer and writers cannot really belong. I live in the world of words and stories. I come from a long line of storytellers. I look to the words of poets and not politics. Poetry to me is the world of truth and politics too often the disappointing world of the possible. I hold to the words of Scottish poet Robbie Burns. If I could write all the songs, he said, I would not care who wrote the laws. As always for me, as I have struggled to make sense of my place, to make sense of my country, to wonder what the future may hold, not just for me, but for my country, as always, there is James Baldwin. This week, the New York Times ran a feature article remembering him. And again, Baldwin spoke to what I feel and said it better than I ever could. He wrote, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with pain. What is ghastly and really almost hopeless in our racial situation now is that the crimes we have committed are so great and so unspeakable that the acceptance of this knowledge would lead literally to madness. The human being then, in order to protect himself, closes his eyes, compulsively repeats his crimes and enters a spiritual darkness which no one can describe. Only white Americans can consider themselves expatriates. Once I found myself on the other side of the ocean, I could see where I came from very clearly. And I could see that I carried myself, which is my home, with me. You can never escape that. I am the grandson of a slave and I am a writer and I must deal with both. I was a maverick, a maverick in the sense that I depended on neither the white world nor the black world. That was the only way I could have played it. I would have been broken otherwise. I had to say, a curse on both your houses. The fact that I went to Europe so early is probably what saved me. It gave me another touchstone, myself. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2016. You can find other recorded talks and discussions on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.